Hi and welcome to this podcast today with me Gita Joshi. I'm here with Sarah Needham. Welcome Sarah. Hello. So we met, um, I don't know, several months ago, didn't we? I think it was online and then I came to see you at Roy's People Art Fair. And one of the things I remember most about your work was that you work directly with pigments, so you're not using um, paints out of the tube, but you actually, you know, source ground pigments and then mix them up yourself. Can you tell us more about that? Well, the reason that I do it is because I can make paints that do what I want them to do, rather than the manufactured ones that, so I can have highly pigmented paint that is quite liquid, rather than having fillers or preservatives or anything that that makes them kind of bulky because I like to have sheer layers but that that are highly pigmented so that allows me to do that and then the other reason that I do it is because my work is related to the history of trade and pigments and I like to have the actual thing in my hands before I'm using it there's something that makes a connection more of a connection with that historical thing just like when I do historical research I really love it when I get to actually touch the old documents there's a kind of visceral lovely gorgeous connection that going that back makes. to yeah. source with it yeah. yeah yeah so yeah and I suppose it also connects to you know the history of painting and a little nod to what the people that came before us and, mm. and would have made everything would have had to make everything because that's although they probably would have had juniors to do it <laughs> but um, yeah and then so what sort of pigments do you use for that I use the pigments are chosen because of their role in the history of trade. So any collection that I make will have a particular root source that will determine which pigments I use. So that they can be, you know, the really ancient pigments like the um, ochres and earth pigments that have been used since prehistory. Or I'm, I may be looking at something that's much more modern and, and in which case I would be using, you know, 20th century pigments if that's what was... Um, determined by the research so so when you were showing at Roy's people that was back in I think it was April yeah um and then since then you've also shown at the other art fair in Bristol yeah so how did those two bodies of work I mean obviously they were you know sort of research for their context yeah so the collection that was at Roy's people was thinking about the way in which the south of the river has transformed because it was at the Oxo Tower the Oxo Tower building yeah barge house and that building used to be a power station for the post office and um, so it would have been receiving coal and there's also the Thames as a river has a bit of a special place in my relationship with London and my relationship with and so for the Thames I keep being drawn to cobalt pigments for the Thames because of the way in which the Thames is rich because it changes and because it's stable, and with cobalt-based pigments, cobalt is an amazing mineral because it's so unstable, so it, you actually get a lot of different colours from cobalt-based pigments because they, it bonds with a lot of different elements. So that's kind of the change and the instability, but they're very permanent pigments, which is the stability. So for me, the Thames and cobalt-based pigments and chromium green, because that was a Turner pigment, but those are the Thames, so that that's where those come from and then there were a lot of ochres in those pieces as well and ochres for me are the human because people have used ochres to mark make since we have any kind of evidence for which is prehistoric and cave paintings and, cave things. Paintings and yeah. things and that's just you know that's an amazing thing so that's the, that was what the pigments were there 
Mm-hmm. With Bristol, I took a very Bristol-specific and much more time-specific approach, and I looked at the Bristol Presentment Papers, which are documents that record they recorded what was imported through Bristol Docks from 1770, and there's about 80 years of papers or maybe 100 years of papers. But I took the first year that they were published and the first six months of the first year that they were published and only used pigments in the paintings that were imported through Bristol during that six-month period. So I found out what they were. They were recorded in these papers and um, just used those. And what were they imported for other than painting at that time? So at that time, there were dye. um, There was a lot of uh, textiles in Bristol, so they were used for dyeing. They were used for painting the houses of the merchants, so like house paints as well as... um, Bristol also had, very early on, had two colour men, you know, the the mixes of paint, the commercial mixes of paint. And it, apart from London, most places didn't at that period. So Bristol was kind of early on in having its colour men. So there must have been a reasonable demand from artists in that region mm-hmm. to have had that. Chemists used pigments as well. So they would have gone into the chemists' shops and there was a big ceramics. Well, there were ceramicists and glassmakers. So then the pigments would have been transported around the UK for the different industries where this manufacture... Yeah, they would, because they'd have been taken out of Bristol into the local centres from, from there. So what is it about trade that particularly interested you? I've got a long-term interest in the history of trade and its impact on people and place. I have a master's degree in development studies, which I did because I wanted to find out more to feed into my art. It's a funny reason to do a master's degree, but that's but I did. And and there's a way in which the trade in pigments echoes all international trade. So for example, the indigo that I used in the Bristol collection was imported from North and South Carolina and was a result of the slave trade and is a sort of evidence base for the history of the slave trade in Bristol. And the ochres and Vermilion and one or two other pigments that I used were traded from Rotterdam, so they're an evidence base of the trade with Europe during the 1700s. Amazing, so interesting that how it connects to so many different aspects of, of well, our, our history. history. Yeah. yeah. So once you've sourced the pigments that you're going to work with, how mm-hmm. does that then transform into your paintings? The thing about economic research is that it's really the evidence for that is all there. It's all recorded in British documents all over the place. But the thing that's not recorded are the human stories and the way that that would have impacted on people. And so when I'm actually making my work, what I try and what I'm always, I make abstract pieces that create space and I'm trying to create space for those human stories and for people to be able to make connections with their own human stories. So they're evocative spaces Mm -hmm. and they kind of invite you in. I want people to fall in and and make their own connections with them to make that human richness that that's missing from all of those documents. So it, as a way of a cultural, it's a, to make something cultural from something economic, basically, to make something richer yeah, yeah, out I of see. that. Yeah. And then, so when you were at Bristol, because that was your most recent phone, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So did you spend a lot of time talking to people about this? I did, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did, and I, I had a little, for the people who were shy and don't want to talk, I had a little bit of paper that explained it all as well. <laughs> as well. And some people, they really want to know, and some people want to just have that reaction. And for me, that's fine, actually. That's, 
that's fine because in a way I'm mining something that's very interesting to me what I want people to do is find something that hits their heart and relates to to them in a kind of very personal way and people do that differently yeah some people need lots of information some people just feel it so what happens when you get your pigments and you source them mostly through I mostly buy them from Cornelison's because yeah. they do very nice quality pigments. <laughs> and then you're able to just mix them up to different, what, viscosity and intensities and things like that as well when you... Yeah, yeah. And so the, the most sort of basic fundamental thing is is a linseed oil base. And then after that, it's different. I, um, you add different things and I use a combination of traditional things and modern ready mixed uh, oil painting media because someone else can do that job for me (laughs) Um, uh, I use a combination of those things and I play with how matte they are how gloss they are I play with how intense the coloration is or how loose it is and I don't mix color I don't mix pigments on my palette they are only ever mixed by layering on the actual painting surface so I make one paint at a time and use all of that paint that I've made. Sometimes there's some wastage. And then I'll make another paint. So there's a, I don't have a traditional palette which has lots of blobs of colour. And then how many paintings are you working on at a time then? I can be working on several at a time, partly because there's this waiting that's got to go on between waiting for things to dry. So that because depending on how wet the layer is below, is how much it will mix or how much it will sit one surface on another. So I'll usually have maybe three or four paintings on the go Mm -hmm. at at any one time, sometimes more. And I'm building a new studio in my back garden. Amazing. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) And then I will have more space, so I'll be able to work both bigger and maybe have more pieces going at once because my studio at the moment is very small. Great. So you were telling me earlier that um, Bristol, um, the other art fair there, was really good for you. Yeah. And you got some work off the back of that. I mean, you sold work, is that right? And then you've had sort of subsequent interest as well. Yeah. So I did, I sold three pieces while I was there and I've sold another one since I was there from that collection. The biggest one has sold, which is kind of nice. (laughs) And, And then I've also got some interest, a possible, well, I've quoted for a commission so we'll see if that comes through if it does that will be very nice indeed and then has it and on the back of that has that given you momentum to do other art fairs or other exhibitions and things like that well yes it has so it's made me feel it's made me feel like more confident really um to take a bit more of a risk on the and invest a bit more money in in other art fairs so I've got two applications which I'm waiting to hear from Mm -hmm. I've got Roy's people coming up which is a sure thing and yeah so that's I could have a potentially extremely busy um, autumn <laughs> which would be great so so yeah. that's great though but you've been using this you know the summer is generally quiet isn't it anyway in the art world mm. you know the sort of season runs from September through yeah. to about well the art year runs from about September through to June I guess um so you've been using the summer to apply for things yes I have and I've also had a piece in Curious Duke over the summer in their summer show um and I've got some work in Highgate Contemporary Art as well, which is just an on, ongoing thing. But yeah, I've been applying for things and having a summer holiday. <laughs> which is always good. <laughs> which is always good, yeah. So, yeah. But it's really interesting that, you, you know, work. you've applied for multiple things because particularly when you were saying that you've applied for art fairs, which I know, you know, a couple you're still waiting on. Yeah. Um, but that idea of investing in yourself because, 
you know what we were saying before yeah. is that the sort of the first part of this year has really sort of built your confidence and it's really mm. validated a lot of the work you're doing you know essentially through sales I guess that's one of the key things it's the yes. interest you've had um that you're prepared to sort of um not only wait for a gallery to take you on which I'm sure will happen soon enough yeah but also you know sort of selling directly and taking your work out to more audiences yeah so well I mean one of the things that did happen is two galleries did take me on this year so that was great it's actually um, building a peer group of people a peer group of artists that I would say for me uh, um, over the last year that's probably been the most important thing because we have shared and supported each other and you know encouraged each other through the no's and celebrated each other through the yeses and it's been absolutely fantastic and key to me to kind of really feel part of that world mm. rather than a little fish swimming <laughs> on a big pond. That's yeah. so cool. Though. Is that yeah. also because you were you self-trained? No, I did. I went to college, but a long time ago. And then when I first came out of college, I was showing in sort of not in non-traditional places. And then I was working as a teacher, and I was just working so much that the art I was making work, but not really showing it. And then I had kids, and that went. That just everything went <laughs> to pot when <laughs> I had kids, to be honest. And so the last few years have been when I've really gone, okay, this is the thing you've always wanted to do. So now you do it and you don't do anything else. You well obviously I'm still a mum, but you, you don't you don't try and do anything else apart from little bits of money earning, you know, necessity, money earning. But you make this work and so I've got this determination that this is the thing. I've always wanted to do it. It'd be the thing that if I look back at my life I hadn't ever tried, I would be so disappointed with myself. Yeah. So that's, and I am determined that, you know, this is going to work. And it means when it doesn't, you know, when you get, obviously it's a world where there are lots of, you have to be, I think the other thing is because I'm older, I may be more able to take the no's. Mm-hmm. and not take it personally just be more resilient with yeah, it as well yeah exactly and i think when i was younger i'd probably found that more more difficult and i think that's where having this sort of um network of lovely artist people that i now have who are all trying to do the same thing that we can that you kind of build resilience because you're a group rather than a an individual yeah. and you have conversations which is okay so you wanted to do this thing that's not happened so what are you going to do that will make it happen anyway and that's more just resourceful brilliant. in that yeah. way yeah. yeah yeah which I think is brilliant where did you build this peer group is it through people you've met online or is it through the fairs that you've taken part in um, or other places there's a little bit of online but I prefer real real of course human contact so there is a bit of online and then Roy's people which was set I went to the first Roy's people and they really I mean I did I do have other artist friends that I've had for a long time so it's not only that but through Roy's people I met a group of people who were all trying to do just what I was trying to do at the same time that I'm trying to do it and Roy's people was set up in a way that made it very friendly that they're very friendly they created a very friendly atmosphere deliberately and it meant that artist networking between each other was really strong and that's really where that the group that I'm talking about now where we go so this hasn't happened and what we're going to do that's where that came from really there so that's very lovely so the next six to 12 months what have you got lined up or what's going on so I'll have my studio hopefully mid-September 
mm-hmm. and so I can work on some bigger pieces, which is very exciting. And how big is bigger? Well, three metres. Oh, brilliant. Also, because I really want to make some really big. I love working big, but I've been constrained by the the, the length of my studio wall. <laughs> um, so that will be really lovely to have that sort of space to do that. So I've got this project, which I'm just at the early stages of researching, and I'm looking at ships that captured ships in the sort of 16, 1700s mm-hmm. that were, I mean, were li- they were licensed to be captured. The privateers had a license from the Navy to capture these ships, which is something that we don't really recognise. We kind of think of it as piracy. Well, there was piracy, but there was also, which is why there are these documents, because they're they're documents that are that record what was in the ships and then the tax was paid to the Admiralty. So it's quite incredible. Yeah. And you it's one of those things where you have you know, I grew up in the southwest of England where you have all these stories about pirates and, and smuggling and, and I think probably that's partly where the this sort of interest, interest comes from. Yeah. And then but they're very romantic, those stories, as they're ch- told to children. And actually, the reality of them was not romantic at all. It was very violent and very, you know, the reason that there are a lot of tragic folk songs around the seaside is because a lot of people died and they were tangled up in this conflict over trade. And I think the potential for conflict over trade is currently being underplayed. And that's partly why it resonates with me, with the whole current situation that Britain's in so that's sort of a little I think that's also partly so most of the things that I look at they have a historical basis but they have a resonance in the present so are you spending hours and hours in the National Archive well I'm able to use their uh, online thing to check for the ships that actually contained pigments in their cargoes and the other sort of selection procedure that I'm doing is the ones that had letters in so they because I have this sort of romantic idea of uh, choosing some of the letters and actually sending them on to the people who <laughs> who didn't receive them because they were captured. So, so they were personal letters. They were personal. They were business letters and personal letters. There were thing the the ship that I've looked at. There was a letter that was written, "Cher maman." It was from a boy to his mother, and it never reached her. And there's a bit of me that would be that would really like to sort of somehow send that letter to that family if I could find out who they were. But, I mean, the addresses were very simple. It might be difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Paris, France. Yeah, this name, Paris. (laughs) (laughs) It may be possible. Or maybe that you send a copy. I mean, obviously, you'd send a copy. You can't send the original. That's in the archive. But So you're able to do a lot of that research um, online, basically, while the paint's drying? No, I don't do it that way. I I I separate them out because... I like to go into the National Archive. It's not very far from, you know, it's in London, so it's not very far from me. And I love the smell of the paper and the feel of the paper and the handwriting. And the handwriting, because it's obviously all written in this beautiful script, that really gives you a connection with the people. It really feels human to do that. So I like to do that in itself. So I'll have like a day when I'll go in and that's what I'll have a probably half day of of working from home to um, select what I want to look at when I'm there. And then I'll go for a full day and sit in the archive. And that's what I do. Be fully absorbed in that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that stuff. God, it reminds me of when I was writing my dissertation. 
it was about the John Moore's um, exhibition. Yeah. Go and sit in the Walker Art Gallery archives and like pulling out these letters by Frank Auerbach and wow. things. Was yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. He touched this, he wrote this. Yeah, well it's true. Like, it's a it's kind of that's a really gorgeous thing. That's a really, really gorgeous thing. So are you just at the research stage with that project or are you actually painting with that as well? Well, I'm painting because I'm kind of have the notion which may change of kind of one painting for each ship. So as each ship comes along and I've got the information for that ship, then I'm, I can start to paint the painting for that particular ship. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if I waited till I'd got all of the research done, that would be a very long um, period. And also for me, I like the balance between kind of academic-y things and some just physical in the studio and I, I no, I make time in the studio every day yeah so I am painting but I'm also still painting for the last collection so there's paintings from the last collection still being completed and there's the beginnings of paintings for this collection starting amazing so your your paintings have a, a particular quite recognizable I think form how, how do you describe that so I'm always playing with creating space and that's the that's what informs them. So they're abstract, but they're spatial. So you should have this ability to fall in. That's what I'm aiming at. And at different times, I'm, I do that slightly differently. So sometimes I borrow from landscape. So I might have a horizon-y kind of thing going on. And sometimes it's more tonal. But it's always to create a three-dimensional space on a two-dimensional um, surface. And then the other thing is colour, just the balance of colour. I want a lovely. The colours are resonant with their meaning, but they also have to be beautiful. How long does a painting typically take for you then? Obviously, you're working over it for over days or is it weeks and months? Do you go um, back to older canvases? Paintings take about three months because there are some things that can't be done until the oil paint has been dried for three months. So that's there. That's there life in the studio it's always going to be three months or a little bit longer <laughs> and Sarah where can people find you online okay so my website is www.sarahneedhamartist.co.uk on Instagram I'm at Sarah Needham 1965 and that's Sarah with an H brilliant thanks so much for coming on the podcast it's been lovely talking to you thank you very much